0: Well, I want to welcome you to the City Temple live stream today. This is just one part of our Sunday worship gathering. And if you'd like to join us for the whole service via Zoom, please email us at info at city-temple.com. And we will make sure that you get the link so that you can join us for the entirety of the day. Today, we welcome this morning Archie Catchpole, Who's an intern at Mill Hill East Church, part of our Good News Group in the Un- in the uh, United Reformed Church, and who he will bring us our message today. So we want to say welcome and thank you both to Archie and to his wife Becca. Thank you for being here with us today. <laughs> Hi. Hey, well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you, uh, albeit online. It's great to be able to see some of you on the Zoom. I can't see all of you, but I'm sure if I could see you, it would be fantastic. I'm sure you're all really good-looking people. Uh, as Karen said, my name's Archie. I'm an intern at Mill Church. I have a fantastically exotic geographical history of having been born in Guildford in Surrey having lived in Guildford and Surrey for 18 years, and then moved to the leafy suburbs of Northwood in northwest London for Bible College, where I studied there for three years, and then moved to Mill Hill, where we've been there the past couple of months. So fascinating geographical history behind me. Um, This is actually the second time I've been in a URC church. Both of them have been quite surreal experiences, obviously, with it being kind of... There a couple of people here because of COVID. But the first time was slightly surreal because I was there um, back home and one of our relatives sadly died. And there was this thing, the funeral company put on this Thanksgiving service um, like every year to just give thanks for all of the people who died. And so we went there with our family. And when you go in, you're supposed to write the name of the person who you're giving thanks for. So they can call up that person's name and then you go up and then you light a candle and it's fantastic. and. Um, a really meaningful way of remembering that person, but my nan, my granddad, and my aunt didn't realize that they were meant to write the name of the person who died and they were giving thanks for it, so they wrote their own names. And so we were sat there in the service, and the person leading, when they were doing the candle calling out, started to to read through the list of names. And then they got to my nan and my granddad and our aunt, and we were sat there, my brother um, sister and parents. And we were like, what? <laughs> They're just here next to us. Um, and they just completely hadn't grasped the meaning of what we were meant to do. And so, but they did it. They went up and they lit candles for themselves to give thanks in their, their own memory, which was fantastic. <laughs> really, so hopefully, yeah, this experience in a, a URC church can be just as fun. The passage that we're looking at this morning is from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, it's where Jesus goes into the temple and he clears it. And I don't know about you but I don't know that many people who could have a tantrum in a temple and get away with it. Obviously very few people are gonna have a tantrum in, in this city temple because it's such a lovely space and you're such lovely people but there are very few people I think in the world who could throw a tantrum in a temple and live to kind of see the other side of it. And not even Jesus could get away with having a tantrum in a temple. What Jesus does in the temple in this passage so enrages the Jewish religious hotshots, the bigwigs of their day, that they go in, and they conspire to try and kill Jesus, which is a, a pretty extreme escalation from like the naughty step or a timeout, but I guess they maybe didn't have those kind of ways of disciplining in Jesus' day. I absolutely love this passage. I think, I don't know anyone who doesn't love this passage, it's such a, a vivid story, it's such an enthralling story it shows Jesus at his most wild and whenever we want to show to people that oh hey Jesus can be really interesting the story of when Jesus like fashions whips and turns tables over in a temple is one of the first ones that we go to. There's an amazing meme or joke, I don't know if you've heard it, it says that if anyone's annoying you and they ask you what would Jesus do then you can always remind them that fashioning whips and flipping tables is within the realm of possibilities. But for all the jokes that we can make about this story, for all the ways that we can caricature it, this was not a freak flash of anger from Jesus. He doesn't just rock up into the temple, see these bad things going on, and just flare up into some kind of, storm of anger. This was actually a premeditated and completely deliberate action performed by Jesus at the absolute peak of his public ministry. And so it is easy to joke about this passage, it's easy to to kind of think in our heads, oh Jesus just got a bit mad at people making money in the temple. But we're gonna tell this story today, this morning, we're gonna go through it and I hope that we can listen to it without some of the baggage that we often attach to it, and without some of the preconceptions, I hope that we can hear it in a fresh way this morning. And as I guide us through this story, I hope to be able to show, firstly, that God cares about the conduct of his people. And secondly, that with Jesus, there is a new way for us to relate to God. So let's begin. And a great place to begin, actually, as with any story, is in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. God creates the world. God speaks, and creation tumbles out. And on the sixth day, God creates humankind. He makes us in his own image, and he gives us charge of his garden. We're God's gardeners in Eden. He asks us to take care of the world, to look after it, to basically reflect God's blessing into all of creation. Jump forward a few chapters and we're in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 3 and God is calling Abraham and he makes a covenant promise with him and God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. The people who bless you I will bless and the people who curse you I will curse. And this is the key part, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all creation. It's a kind of repeat and different form of that Genesis 1 job that humanity is given to do. God blesses us so that we can bless everyone else. God chooses chooses Abraham and chooses to make a nation out of Abraham, the Israelites, so that that nation can bless all of creation. In other words, God's blessing is for sharing. So we fast forward then a fair few years, quite a few years in fact, and a traveling preacher and miracle worker called Jesus has rented a donkey and he's riding his way into Jerusalem. The crowd are going crazy because it's Passover time and the paths are filled with pilgrims. All of them are drunk on the fumes of freedom because at Passover they firstly celebrate the way that God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt the way that he led them out of Egypt into the promised land. And secondly, because the Israelites at Passover, they are eagerly expecting God to do the same again. They're under Roman rule, they're not their own nation per se, and they're anticipating God's liberating, freeing act once again. And so Jesus, he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and a donkey, by the way, Believe it or not, you never would have guessed. A donkey was the Rolls Royce of Jesus' time. The donkey was a way of saying, I am someone royal. It was a a royal mode of transport. Two of Israel's greatest kings, King David and King Solomon, both rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And what Jesus is doing is kind of imitating that act, but on a far greater scale, because, of course, it's, it's Jesus, and he's awesome. And so the place is buzzing, the crowd are cheering, they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and Jesus enters like a king. But when he gets into Jerusalem, the crowd, we don't read what happens, but the crowd just suddenly seem to disappear. They, I don't know, get tired, they get hungry, they go off and they leave Jesus there. The religious leaders of the Jews, they don't meet Jesus when he arrives, neither do the Roman authorities. So Jesus is just there in Jerusalem. He's coming like a king, but then it's like the balloon just bursts. And so what we read in Mark chapter 11, verses 11, is that Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and he looked around it, and then, as it was already late, he went away with the 12 disciples to Bethany. He retires to the night to an Airbnb two miles outside of the city that he was supposed to be crowned king. The very next day, Jesus and the disciples, they wake up, they go back into Jerusalem, and on the way, Jesus sees a fig tree, he goes up to it, it doesn't have any fruit, and he was really hungry, so he curses it. It's a really weird story, it seems a bit random, we'll get to it later. and then. In our passage, and I'm going to be reading from the NRSV, And please forgive me, uh, I don't have an ESV with me, um, but we'll start in verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city and went back to their Airbnb, although that bit is just in the footnotes. They don't have it in the original Greek, I don't think. So what's taking place here? What on earth is going on in this story? When we read it, I think one of the first things that comes to mind, because of the money changes and the den of robbers, we immediately think, Jesus is fuming at these people who have turned the temple into a marketplace. This is Jesus' way of protesting the commercialization and the corruption of the temple. And I think that's right. I think that's true. The corruption, the commercialization that was going on in the temple was just, it was detestable and I'm absolutely certain that Jesus must have been just completely grieved by it, the way that Israel had turned God's house into this marketplace for them to rip off the poor and sell money from like, overpriced lambs and currency exchange. At Passover, you'd go and you'd go to the temple and you'd make your sacrifice. But if you were a pilgrim coming in from outside of Jerusalem, if you were to bring your own animal, and chances are you would have had a lot of your own animals, if you were to bring your own animal along with you on the pilgrimage, a, that would just be a bit annoying because you'd get like the animal version of are we nearly there yet? and stuff like that. But also, there was the chance that your animal might get hurt or blemished on the way. And you had to present an unblemished sacrifice. And if your your animal that you were going to sacrifice suddenly got hurt or it got Marked or something like that, then you've basically kind of wasted an animal because you can't sacrifice it. And so what people would do is instead of bringing their own animals, they would just buy animals at the temple. And there's an ancient historian called Josephus, uh, who he writes in AD 66. So it's about 30 years after Jesus. But he says that at the Passover in Jerusalem in AD 66, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed. That's, like, that's crazy. That's an astronomical amount. I was talking with Becca about it. We were on a walk, and I just mentioned it in passing, and we were trying to work out how many lambs that would have been per hour, given that the Passover was like a seven-day festival, and if they were sacrificing over 250,000 lambs, they would have had to be doing, we worked out, like 10 lambs an hour or something like that, which is so many lambs be sacrificing. It was the temple industry, the buying and the selling of lambs, the sacrifice, it was like on a ginormous scale. One of the other parts of this temple industry was the changing of money. You've got the money changes. If you were going to buy your own animal, the money that you would have had would have been just the normal Roman coin. However, the Roman normal coin had images that were kind of just seen as impure, and so they weren't allowed to be used in the temple. So you had to go in and you had to exchange your coin for the temple currency, which was at that time called like the Titian the shekel, if you ever needed that for a pub quiz or something like that. So you had to, you had to buy an animal at a ridiculously overpriced price, because they could do that. because. They would only, they'd, like, they'd cornered the market. But to buy that animal, you had to exchange your money at a ridiculously unfair exchange rate. And so the corruption that was going on here, it was awful. If you were like a mafia boss, you would look at that and you'd be like, yeah, this is, this is my aspiration for what I want my mafia kind of operation to be like. They just had it, they had it going for them, they had it made. They were ripping people off left, right, and center. So these are detestable practices in the temple, not just in any old place, but actually taking place in God's house, which was supposed to be holy, was supposed to be pure, was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship, and instead it's a marketplace where people are getting ripped off. And so Jesus has every right to be mad about it, and I think what he does is some act of cleansing. Most of the Bible translations, they title this passage, Jesus cleanses the temple, but Let's think about this for a second. When you're cleaning at home or when you're cleansing, how much of your cleansing looks like flipping over tables and driving people out of your house with a whip? I had quite bad acne, and I had to do a lot of cleansing of my skin as a result, and I can tell you that what Jesus does here is not what cleansing looks like. And if it, if it was Jesus cleansing or clearing the temple, then actually, if we look at it, to, to be completely honest, Jesus doesn't do the best of jobs, because he drives them out for a second, but as soon as he leaves, guess what all of these people are going to do? The money changes and the dove sellers. They're going to pick their tables up, turn the Mac over, and just carry on making money again. They're just going to carry on their commerce. And so I think that money issues are They're real, the corruption is real, but I think it's a symptom and it's not actually the real illness. Something deeper is going on in this passage. Jesus wasn't just cleansing the temple, Jesus was closing it. There are three reasons why I think that we can see this firstly, Jesus' teaching um, in verse 17, secondly, the fact that Jesus disrupts the temple and he stops everything going on, and thirdly, The fig tree. So I'll just go through them real quickly and explain why each of these is a reason why Jesus was closing the temple. And then we'll have a look at if Jesus closed the temple, did anything else open up in its place? Did it just close down and just get like kind of just ruined? Or what happened to the temple? Is there a new temple that opens? But firstly, Jesus' teaching. So in verse 17, Mark summarizes Jesus' teaching and he summarizes it with a collaboration between two of Israel's celebrity prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. He first of all quotes Isaiah 56 verse 7, and he asks it accusingly, he's like, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Jesus knows that everyone knows that the answer is, yeah, of course it's written that the house of God will be a house of prayer for all nations. They knew their scriptures. They knew their stuff. They knew it. They just weren't acting it out. And so this is where we have to go back to Genesis, and we have to go back to the creation story and the the Abraham calling account. And we see that humanity and Israel were supposed to be the people who would bless all of creation. And what we see happening instead is that they had been given God's gift, they had been given God's calling, and they were using it for themselves the people who were being blessed by the things that were going on in the temple was not all creation. It was the priests and the people who did the priests bidding. We then have this quote from Jeremiah 7 verse 11, but you have made it a den of robbers. And I think this verse, I think this is why we sometimes confuse it and think that Jesus was only caring about the money because we think, oh robbers, who are the robbers? They're the thieving pigs who are stealing the money from the poor. But this is a quotation from Jeremiah 7.11, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the um, Jeremiah 7.11. It's basically copied word for word. And so it's a lie on laystone and a, a robber, basically. Um, this is in my notes. Sorry, I'm going slightly off piece, so bear with me a second. A robber. The translation for a robber is actually more likely to be like a revolutionary. It wasn't someone who thieved, it was like a bandit or a revolutionary. And so, who were the revolutionaries in Jesus' day? Well, they weren't like communists, like if you're imagining like a Karl Marx, um, like in first century form, like preaching communism in the temple, that wasn't what revolutionary meant here. Revolutionary here meant an ultra-orthodox like extreme Israel, like nationalist for Israel. They wanted to drive out the Roman invaders and set up the nation of Israel um, for their own. And the temple was the focus of that. The temple was the symbol that Israel was a great nation. And so you've got this den of robbers. The robbers are the people hiding out in the temple trying to use it for Israel's own cause to make Israel great again, effectively. But we also have to look at the context of Jeremiah 7:11 because this is just a summary of Jesus' teaching. Jesus just quotes the den of robbers, but there's no doubt in Jesus' mind and in the crowd's mind that they knew the context of what was taking place. And so if, I'm not gonna read all of Jeremiah 7:1 to 15 but if you do have a moment after this, seriously, go and read it with this story playing in the background, because it is just crazy, it's mind-blowing. But what we read, the verses preceding Jeremiah 7.11, we read that Israel, basically, they're murdering, they're stealing, they're adultering, they're swearing falsely, they're making offerings to false gods. And God says that you are robbers before you even get into the temple. You are, your actions outside of the temple are just wrong, they're corrupt, they're vile, and they disgust me. And then you have the cheek to walk into the temple and say, hey, I've been lusting after, like, false gods and killing people and ripping people off, but I'm safe here because this is God's house. And then the verses that follow verse 11, God says that if you carry on in these ways and if you don't change, I will destroy the temple. And what happens is that the temple was destroyed. The Israelites like, goes into exile and all of that stuff. But then the temple is rebuilt because Jesus is in there in Mark chapter 11. So what Jesus is basically saying with Jesus' teaching is that what I'm doing here in the temple isn't just because of the commercialization. It isn't just because you're ripping people off but it's because you are robbers before you even set foot in the temple. Your behaviour, your conduct outside of the temple disgusts me, basically. You are meant to bless all nations, but the only people you seem interested in blessing are yourselves, and you're not even very good at doing that. So then we get on to the second reason as to why Jesus could be closing the temple here, and it's the fact that he disrupts the temple. Jesus doesn't allow anyone to pass through. He doesn't allow them to carry anything through. And so this disruption, this stopping of carrying things through, this would have meant that no lambs could have been sacrificed. One of the main purposes of the temple was the sacrifice of animals and the the prayer and worship that was associated with that. But Jesus doesn't let that happen. Granted, okay, Jesus stops it for, like, maybe an hour. But this is a prophetic action pointing to a future time when the operations in Jerusalem's temple will be completely closed. There will be another way to get right with God. And thirdly, the fig tree. This is it's one of the weirdest stories, to be honest, the fig tree story. It's just so strange and you hear all like, the stories of Jesus going around healing people and all of that stuff and then you come to Mark chapter 11 and he's walking and he sees a tree that's in leaf and if a tree's in leaf, you should expect fruit from it. And he goes up to the tree but the tree doesn't have fruit and so he gets really mad and he curses it and you're like, who is this Jesus? <laughs> it's just bizarre. But the thing is that this again, it's another prophetic, dramatic parable. The fig tree is Israel. In prophetic literature, in in, like the Israel tradition, the fig tree is frequently used as a metaphor for Israel. And curiously, it's also often used when he's talking about judgment. And so for example, in Micah 7.1, Micah's like, woe is me because I'm really hungry for a fig tree, but there's no ripe figs on the tree. Basically saying, Israel you're not behaving properly you're not producing the fruit that you should be producing and so Jesus says may no one ever eat from you again and then after the cleansing of the temple they walk past the fig tree another time and peter's like whoa jesus you cursed the tree and it actually was cursed as if he's he's been with jesus for years he's seen jesus heal people and then Jesus curses the tree and Peter's surprised that Jesus' curse of the tree actually worked. Like, anyway, the tree is withered away to its roots. The tree basically is no more. There's an air of finality to this, and the same with the, the fig tree is the same with the temple. You're not bearing fruit, you're gonna be closed down effectively. And so Jesus' actions and teaching here, they're dramatic prophetic message that God's done with this temple. He has given Israel chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after chance 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 to change their ways, to bless the whole world, to be a blessing to all creation. And time and time and time again, they mess up. They fail. They don't live up to their calling. They don't meet the job requirements. And so Jesus here is giving this prophetic message. The temple's closed. There's going to be a new way. But, of course, this does pose a dilemma. This poses a question. If the temple in Jerusalem is closed, then how were the people going to get right with God? And how was God going to dwell amongst his people? Because the temple was this place where God would meet earth, where heaven and earth interlapped. they kind of came together in this sacred place. And so if Jesus has just closed the temple, what's going to happen? What does the future of the temple look like? Because God's made a covenant with Israel. Even though they've broken it, God's faithful. He's still going to be faithful to his people. So what's, what's next? And like with every good Sunday school question, you can't go far wrong if your answer is Jesus. In terms of the sin and the holiness and how to get right with God, God still expects us to be a blessing to all creation. The guidelines that God gives for correct living still stand. However, just like the Israelites, we Christians, we're just as bad at fulfilling them. We, we don't live as ideal perfect Christians anywhere near as much as we'd like to. And so what hope is there for us if the temple's closed and we can't sacrifice our lambs to get right with God? Well in John chapter 1 verse 29 John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and he says here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus when he died on the cross he bore the weight of our sin, he completely all upon it himself, on the cross, and he took it down into the grave with him. Sin died with Jesus. His sacrifice took sin away. And three days later, when he bursts forth in glorious resurrection life, it's a hint that sin has no power over us. Death has no power over us. God is victorious. Jesus is victorious. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says that Jesus himself bore his sins on his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness because by his wounds we have been healed. There is hope in Jesus. If you're feeling stuck in your sin, if you are feeling trapped because of the sins of other people, if, if death and darkness are surrounding you and oppressing you, hear this fact from Scripture that Jesus wins. God wins. And then we have the question of the presence of God. If the temple's closed, how is God going to dwell with his people? It's a good question, and I'm gonna answer it. Just got lost in my notes, apologies. Jesus says that his own body becomes the temple. The story of the cleansing of the temple that we have in Mark, it's, it's a good story, but it doesn't tell everything. Basically, Mark tries to tell the story of the cleansing of the temple in this really cryptic way by like sandwiching it with this fig tree story whereas the gospel writer John knows that we're probably not going to get it and so he tells it slightly differently and when John tells it in John chapter 2 he basically gives us explanations and so after Jesus has cleansed the temple he's having like a conflict a discussion with the Jewish leaders and Jesus says destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up and the Jews are like Jesus, what are you talking about? This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you're saying that if you destroy it, you can build it again in three days. Like, no one could do that. And then Jesus, basically, John tells us, he, like, takes us aside as the readers, and he explains it to us. And he says that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body, And then, John also says that after Jesus was raised from the dead, that's when the disciples understood it. So if you're confused by this, and I'm confused by this, the disciples were confused by it too, so we're not alone. But Jesus, his body, is now the place where God dwells with humanity. That famous verse in John chapter 1, God became flesh and moved into the neighbourhood. That happened with Jesus. Jesus is where God dwells in creation. And so now we turn to 1 Peter 2 again, verses 4 to 5. Come to Jesus a living stone, a living stone of the temple. Though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and and precious in God's sight. So Jesus, Jesus' body is the temple. The church becomes God's temple, the place where God dwells with humanity. That's the place where we can meet with God, in Jesus, in the church. And then we go on in 1 Peter 2 to verse 5. Like living stones, Peter's saying to us, you are like living stones. Let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we play a part in this temple when we follow Jesus, when we give ourselves over to him, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, there is God dwelling in us in creation. That is the meeting point between heaven and earth, between God and creation. There in Jesus and there in his followers. And so to bring this message to a close, there are the two things that this passage teaches us that I've tried to draw out this morning. This passage teaches us loads, but these are just the two I've chosen to focus on. It's that God cares about the conduct of his people. When we miss the mark, that matters to God. We can't just go about being like, oh, Jesus saves us, so it's fine if we sin. The conduct of God's people matters. But, and here is the amazing truth of the gospel, is that even when our conduct doesn't make the mark, there is the saving sacrifice of Jesus. There is hope, there is grace, there is mercy in that. And the second point is that with Jesus, there is a new way to relate to God. With Jesus, God comes and dwells in creation we can meet with God through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. These are strange and lonely times. It's difficult not being able to meet together as a church body. It's been going on for a year that churches have been kind of disrupted, that it's been chaotic. But I still, I still find it weird going to church with just a smattering of people, let alone the like social kind of disruption that's been caused. The four walls of our flat just drive me crazy sometimes. I need other people. We need other people and these are strange and lonely times but God is with us. And if God is with us, then we are his mini temples, we are many temples of his presence going out into the whole world. Where we go, God goes with us. And so I'm just gonna pray To bring this message to a close, if that's okay. The worship team, if you'd like to to get up and and prepare to worship afterwards, that would be great. But Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and we thank you for your presence. We thank you that though we are not good enough, we sin and it, it messes things up. We try to bless creation, but we fail so often. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your restoration, and we pray that your restoring presence would go with us, that we would be a people marked by your Holy Spirit, that we would be a people who redeem creation, who bless creation, who love humanity. Father, we pray that you'd help us to bring your blessing into the world.